In this episode of 2000 Books, angel investor and entrepreneur Scott Belsky talks to us about how to take ideas from inception to completion. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Scott Belsky is an early-stage investor in Pinterest and Uber and the founder of Behance, which was acquired by Adobe for $150 million. Scott was named by Fast Company as one of the 100 most creative people in business. Today, we're talking about his outstanding book, Making Ideas Happen, Overcoming the Obstacles Between Vision and Reality. Scott, I'm really excited to have you on the show and learn from you. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And I'm excited about your book today because we're going to talk about how to take ideas from just from an idea to making it a reality. And that's where a lot of early stage entrepreneurs struggle. So let's talk about your personal story. What led you to writing this book? And talk to us in detail about your story because we want to understand who you are behind the book. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting that the book itself was in many ways a a meta project because I was writing a book about making ideas happen, and the book itself is an idea that I was trying to make happen, and I was writing it while I was building Behance, which was a pretty bold idea with a very unqualified team to do something, and it was an idea that we had to work many, many years to make happen, and you know, the book was written while we were doing that as well, so there was like a lot of layers of meta action going on, and actually it was really helpful because the litmus test for me and everything I was learning as I was doing the research for the book was, you know, is this really helpful to me? Mm. And uh, and it was a great experience writing it. Nice. And uh, to jump into your story a little more, um, Behance is like a network, or in some ways, a place where creatives connect, or they talk about their ideas or their different art forms, and they take their art from conception to reality, hopefully. So talk about that. Talk about your business story. I know you went to HBS and from there on you started at Behance. What was the story like? Sure. Well, the the business was, uh, the early stage of the business was built while I was was in business school. And it was really inspired by frustration with how disorganized the creative world was. You had millions of people all around the world whose livelihood was creating the things that compel us to take action and to understand the world around us whether it's motion graphic sequences for the openings of all the shows you like or typography for books and magazines or design for interior design and architecture. And I mean, everything around us is crafted by some form of designer. And so the idea of Behance was really to help organize this population of people to be more accountable to their ideas, to get more attribution and credit for the work that they do, and therefore get more opportunity. And so that was the genesis of the the concept. And then building a team together that shared those values and iterating for years was how we built Behance, which ultimately became a network of you know millions and millions of creatives all around the world. And uh, we, we bootstrapped the business for about five years. And uh, then we're a venture capital-backed business for about a year or so. And then we were uh, acquired by Adobe. Um, and I stayed at Adobe for over three years, leading not only Behance, but other, other products within the company. And it was an incredible journey that we all went through together. 
and uh, brought us all very, very close. Yeah, and now you've moved on to the world of investing. It's fascinating. I mean, the idea of uh, helping creatives take their ideas from conception to reality in some ways. And in same ways, in entrepreneurship, we struggle with the same problems, like taking our ideas from the point we conceptualize them to reality. It's not very different, is it? All ideas face a headwind, not a tailwind, right? It's a way that society keeps running. It's a way that companies stay on track and stay in budget, that most ideas actually must be killed. And so there is a natural immune system in every company, in every team, and in society that kills ideas before they have a chance of happening. And it's actually a very healthy thing. And so when we're building an idea and trying to bring it to fruition, we're fighting against a very important and natural immune system around us. But of course, society would never advance and industries would never improve if it weren't for ideas that broke through. And so... The book was really written for people that have some insight that they deeply care about, that they need to push, whether it's in their team or company or in their industry or in the world. And, you know, it helps them kind of navigate the forces to bring it to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you said, there's this resistance, there's this gravity that we're fighting against. We have to push the ideas to take off rather than assume that somehow they will find life, somehow they will become a reality. And one of the keys, as you talk about, the first key is some ways it's action orientation. It's it's like being able to execute on the ideas, being able to organize around them rather than uh, hoping that somehow they'll come alive. Yeah, I found that uh, in the interviews I did with especially productive leaders and teams in the creative world, I found that organization was very much an advantage or a competitive advantage in the creative world. Most organized individuals and teams, they weren't necessarily the most creative, by the way, but they were the most organized with their ideas, had the best chance of those ideas seeing the light of day. And some of these people are some of the most productive in the sense they are very prolific and they don't have to necessarily be creative all the time, but the idea of being prolific kind of gets them to these creative ideas, to these interesting ideas. Uh, you talk about Thomas Kincaid and James Patterson and all these guys. Tell us about those stories. Well, the concept there is that the output that you make with your ideas is really a product, not a sum of your creativity and your level of organization. So if you have all the creativity in the world, but no organization, you'll have no impact or no output. But if you have maybe less creativity, but some organization, you'll have more impact. And then I talk about some examples of people like Thomas Kincaid or James Patterson, who were notoriously productive, but you could argue compromised on the scale of originality. You, know, you talk to art critics, what do they think of Thomas Kincaid's work? You know, a guy with a gallery in every resort town in America, and he's universally despised by art critics. They say <laughs> it's all the same. It's like a factory. You know, same as with James Patterson, a man who claims to write seven novels at once, who has published more books than Random House has published books combined. And, you know, and this is someone who the literary critics say, oh, the plots are the same, the same book over and over. But in fact, he's just incredibly, incredibly prolific. Now, I don't think that we all need to be we, we need to be on that side of the spectrum, you know, in terms of compromising creativity and focusing on organization to maximize impact. But I think it's an important point that all of us, you know, everyone that's listening needs to think about. Are you focusing too much energy on your ideas and more ideas and more ideas and incubating and tending to many, many ideas rather than really, really 
focusing only on one of the ideas you've already got and how to organize around it and hold yourself accountable and push it forward and get feedback and do what it takes to give it a chance. Yeah, I mean, it's very seductive to just go and start one idea and then start another idea and start another idea and start another idea. And uh, that's unfortunately the demise of any real work that can happen because we never really get to see the light of day for anything, for any real output per se. And you have been involved in the investing world for a while. So you, you're seeing it from the other side as well, where you are investing in teams, you're investing in uh, people who are doing these things. So when you're looking for new investment opportunities and it comes to organization and execution, what is it that you're looking for? And how do you find out if this is going to work, if this is something that I can put my weight behind? What's your way of looking at it? Um, I think that there are a few things that I look at when I'm looking at investment. The idea is the the smallest importance in terms of, you know, what excites me. I mean, there are many, many great ideas out there. What I'm looking for is evidence of the team being fully committed. And I call it committal benefits when teams come to me and say, oh, well, I still have a full-time job or I have three ideas and I'm exploring them. I mean, I never get interested because until you commit, it's hard to know that you're all in and that you're going to actually do that last 10% margin work that actually makes the difference. Mm -hmm. And so I call them committal benefits. You know, when you actually go all in on something and take risk in every other part of your life to make that one thing happen, there are benefits from that commitment in, in, in the sense that people like me and others will just suddenly back you and really believe in you and take a leap of faith in some ways on some of the things you haven't validated yet. I am very focused on tendency towards execution. Mm -hmm. And does this team have any track record of actually pushing ideas to fruition? And there are a bunch of other sort of things I look for in terms of whether a company is design and product centric, um, you know, whether they really listen and learn how the founders get along, what their relationship looks like, sort of their, their approach to go to market, you know, whether they're disciplined in terms of what a product market fit should really look like. Um, there are a lot of things that I go through and, you know, it's yeah. different things for every team, but that's that gives you some idea. Yeah, yeah. And I understand you've been an early investor in Uber as well. And though Uber is fascinating with the way and with the speed at which they execute, what is it that you've seen there that has allowed them to execute so fast? Every company is different. You know, and, and for Uber to work in the early days, they had to be willing to defy a lot of restrictions in the way things were being done, whether it was the way cities managed taxis, the way the government viewed some of these companies that played in transportation on the digital or technology side. And, and so you had to be an aggressive company in order to withstand the scrutiny and keep persevering and keep fighting. It required a lot of fighting to allow this concept to even exist in the world. And I admired that. You know, I think that over time, the companies had to change the playbook because now, in, in most areas at least, a widely accepted technology. And so it's no longer about fighting to survive. Now it's about building relationships to thrive. And, uh, and so I think the company is and is changing and needs to change to some degree in that sense. But it really, you know, it just, uh, it's, it was amazing to see the level of iteration the empowerment within the company to the people that ran the cities so that different teams could try different 
go to market attempts and different promotions and different marketing channels and and then share those best practices and what worked throughout the company. There are a lot of things I think we'll look back to Uber and learn from over time. Yeah, as you said, they have been evolving in the sense they're moving away from their aggressive tactics and more towards relationship building, which is fascinating to see. And you talk about in the book, like the idea of harnessing the communal forces, you know, the people around us, because there's so many different variables to that. There's so many different levels and hierarchies of people that we need to work with. Sometimes as creatives, as entrepreneurs, we think, we want to keep our idea sacred. We want to keep it a hush-hush inside this little world of ours until it's fully baked. But it doesn't really work like that, does it? No, I think that there are a lot of counterintuitive ways that your customers, your competitors, and your peers help you push an idea to fruition. Um, I mean, if we talk about if we talk about the importance of competition for a moment, you know, in the creative world, competition is sort of a dirty word. Uh, people don't like to talk about being competitive with other creative minds. Everyone's doing their own unique art, right? But in essence, it's how we execute. I mean, one great example is a man I met during the book research named Noah Kalina, a Brooklyn-based photographer who had been, whatever for whatever reason, taking a photograph of himself every single day for about five years. And he was trying to make ends meet, shooting weddings and things like that. But every day, he would take a photograph of himself. And five years in, he had never shared it with the world. He had never done anything with it, despite the level of perspiration required and, and commitment in doing something like that. And so uh, one day he's surfing a blog and he comes across a post by uh, another photographer, a woman who had been taking a photograph of herself every day for two years. And she was talking about how brilliant this is and how she was about to debut it in some sort of you know art form. And he looks at that and in an instant he says, there's no way that she's going to beat me to the punch here. I mean, I've been doing this for five years. And so in a matter of uh, one week, he puts together this YouTube video of every single photograph in rapid succession. And he puts them all up in this like montage video. It's a beautiful like couple minute video called Every Day. And it becomes one of the most viewed YouTube videos of all time. And he gets you know a lot of press for it. He gets on the cover of some of these photography magazines. He's interviewed on some morning show. And this really becomes the platform for his career, which, you know, really went upwards from there. And it, it all tracks back to the impetus to act. You know, he had some idea brewing, some creative project, something you're working on. You know, everyone has something they're working on. And sometimes the impetus to actually act on it and push it to fruition comes from someone else around us. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, is that we all have to be pacing ourselves with other people, with other brands, other companies, Whether you're an artist, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a writer, if you think you're above it, you're wrong. Like everyone needs to pace themselves because oftentimes the most important action, you know, is taken through the impetus to act from others. Yeah, yeah. And the whole idea of, let's start with the idea of competition, as you were talking about. We bring our very best selves when we are in a competition. That's how athletes thrive. Athletes don't record their personal best when they are trying to do it all by themselves. Nobody records an Olympic record when they're trying to run their 100-meter dash. It's only when they are with other people, when they are with eight other athletes, that's when they bring their very best to the world, to themselves. And there's something, as you said, I mean, in the world of creatives, uh, maybe competition sounds a little negative in some ways, but it is one of the best tools to get the best out of yourself. And the same, yeah. And the same with accountability and, you know, making 
public commitments in some ways to get where you want to go. Yep. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And, and I think the idea of public commitment is is a scary one for a lot of people and we shy away from it. So how can we trigger ourselves to do that? Because you've probably seen that a lot now in the startup world, being where you are with the investment world. What's a good way to approach it? And how do you make that a reality constantly in your entrepreneurial venture when you are starting off, when you were early in it? Well, I think it's important to share ideas liberally. And it goes against the tendency of an entrepreneur who thinks, oh, I don't want to tell anyone because they'll steal the idea, or I don't want to tell anyone because it's not ready for prime time yet. And these are all risks. But the truth is, is that the benefit of sharing ideas liberally outweigh the costs. First of all, if someone can so easily steal your idea from hearing it, it wasn't scalable to begin with. And so it's probably not a good idea over time. But the benefit of sharing ideas liberally are things like people saying, oh, you know, you should talk to so-and-so. They'd be a perfect member of your team which, and as we know, to build something, it's all about the talent you surround yourself with. Or people saying, oh, you know, that doesn't really make sense to me. Maybe you could try describing it this way. And, you know, that new little hook makes all the difference in your marketing and how you, how you articulate your business to others. I mean, these insights, this feedback, it's all data that helps us triangulate towards the right approach, the right idea, the right execution. And if you're not sharing your idea liberally, you are stripping yourself of the resources that you need to execute and to succeed. And so I strongly encourage entrepreneurs to share ideas liberally and to recognize that the benefits far outweigh the costs. Yeah, in many ways, I mean, the way what we've been talking about and what you've written in the book, it's kind of counterintuitive to the way you would think a creative should work or as an entrepreneur should work. Maybe not counterintuitive given where we have seen a lot of the successes happen, but when you start off, when you are not aware, this is not the way you see the world. Right, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Let's talk about the idea of circles because you talk about, I would call it a mastermind because being able to associate with people in your same group or in your same maybe art form of writing group or entrepreneurs group or whatever it is, how important is that? Uh, we underestimate, we somehow think that we can do it all by ourselves, but doesn't work like that. Well, the way to think about circles is really the group of people that you check in with periodically, hold yourself accountable with. I encourage a lot of early stage entrepreneurs to put together their unofficial board of advisors or board of directors. And these are not people they're paying in any way, but these are people they have a relationship with that they challenge themselves to check in with on a regular cadence, who they share their ambitions with and their challenges with and who they can learn from. And they can be peers. You know, These are not to be necessarily people that are more experienced or more successful or whatever than you. These can be, it's just a group of people that we, it's our cohort. And I just think that great ideas don't happen in isolation. And I really found no example where they did. Even the lonely introverted artist has a small group that she or he connects with on a regular basis to share their progress and commit to when they're going to have a draft and these sorts of things. It's a very important force in community that we underestimate and spend too little time building for ourselves, but is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to enroll others in order to make big things happen in this world. I mean, we have to enroll others in order to be able to get leverage and in order to get scale. And right. uh, time and again, time and again, this is a constant theme. If we don't do that, we're going to be stuck in mediocrity in some way. It's almost like no matter how good a product we make, it may not even be possible to make a good product if we don't have right people. But it's just not possible to even get 
any kind of traction if we do not enroll people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I see this a lot with the research community in some ways. My brother is a computer scientist and he has this idea. He has this notion that if I have this great idea, it doesn't matter what kind of people are behind it or not. I will go out by myself and make it happen and prove it. And we have this constant dialogue back and forth where I say, no, you got to work with people. You got to enroll other people in order to make this happen. But he has this maverick mindset where he says, no, I'll just figure it out. I'll make it happen all by myself. And it almost leads to a lot of frustration in this world. You know, it's also sad because in some ways, you know, he could have some of the solutions to our gravest problems in his mind. And I always like to tell people like your brother when I meet them, that they don't only have the opportunity with their brilliance and their research and their position, but they also have a responsibility. You know, these things that germinate in the minds of some of the brightest people out there, what a shame, you know, that they never see the light of day and they never get like the true opportunity they need to time to fruition because, you know, people keep them in and, you know, and, and they just sort of die in the mind, you know, and never get the nourishment. So I think it's important that creative people feel like this dose of responsibility alongside the opportunity. Yeah. And have you been able to find ways to convert people to that way of thinking in some ways? Because you've probably seen people like that quite a lot in your career. I mean, working with creatives and working with entrepreneurs, early stage entrepreneurs who might not have thought that way. You know, that really was the genesis of the book. Making Ideas Happen was intended to be an argument for why it's not about ideas. It's about making ideas happen and what the forces are that actually matter and sort of dispelling the myth of the lone creative genius. The fact that or the absent-minded professor who comes up with some breakthrough and changes the world. It just doesn't happen unless those people surround themselves with very organized people that can manage them or are become extraordinarily organized themselves. Yeah, I guess I was looking for a specific thing I could talk to my brother about so I could sway him towards this way of thinking. But I understand what you're saying. I mean, you've provided a complete thesis there in the book. And hopefully, when I sit together with my brother next time, we'll, we'll talk about it again. So. <laughs> It's important, you know, it's and it's a great gift you can give him to help him, you know, value that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about another another important idea, like being able to hold these different extremes, almost like two opposing ideas in our head and to be able to work with them and to be able to use them to move ourselves forward. In some ways, that's like self-awareness and leadership, as you talk about in the book. Well, I think that self-awareness is a competitive advantage in the creative world because it's what makes us grow. And, you know, and I think a lot of great ideas gain traction through all the hard work we're talking about. And then the leader, you know, the creative leader starts to think too highly of themselves. They stop listening. They stop seeing their faults and constantly trying to improve their form. And then as a result, they just start to become weak and people stop following them and the team falls apart. You know, why do most great bands break up? It's not because their music becomes bad. It's because the egos you know, get in the way of the collective whole the lack of self-awareness gets in the way of the correction that has to happen, and then the band breaks up. So I think that in terms of being an organization that grows and learns and also being a leader that continually evolves to like bring an idea to fruition and changes their tendencies at different times during the journey, you know, you have to be uh, extraordinarily self-aware. Yeah. And what are your rituals or practices that you're using to develop that self-awareness? Because that's 
one of the most difficult things to do in our life, but at the same time, one of the most rewarding. You know, I, I try to be very critical of myself. You know, when things don't go my way, instead of trying to blame external factors, I really try to say, like, what could I have done? You know, and I think a lot of people have the tendency to just blame external factors as a way to like make themselves feel better and move on. I'm very much into the postmortem concept, both with my teams as well as individually. Every time something happens, whether it goes well or not, what could we have done better? You know, let's challenge our assumptions here. And then I also think you know, having people in your life that can ground you, you know, and can kind of remind you of the factors that are really making the impact and kind of get in the way of this sometimes, you know, false narrative we tell ourselves. One of the strangest things I've observed in, among successful entrepreneurs is that they, you know, they attribute their success to the, the playbook they played without realizing that they may have succeeded in some cases despite the things that they did rather than because of them. Just because you know, people say Steve Jobs was, was an asshole sometimes to people that worked for him, and then I know some entrepreneurs out there who say, oh, well, then I should be that way. And no, I mean, first of all, every leader is different. Don't try to play someone else's playbook. But also, maybe he was successful despite being that way, not because of it. So we always have to be asking ourselves, what are the things getting in our way? You know, what are the success factors? Let's not assume that they're actually correlated, you know, maybe despite of instead of because of. And these are the constant levels of scrutiny I think we have to put ourselves under uh, to sustain our self-awareness. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost like we have to force this level of self-awareness on ourselves to be able to understand and to be able to operate at a higher level in this world, in our entrepreneurial ventures. So, Scott, you've had quite a successful run so far. You've you've built Behance, you've sold it to Adobe, you've been investing in a lot of great startups of late. So if I if you were to look back at your career of all the things you've been doing so far, and you're still, I believe, under 40, right? Yeah. That's right. So looking back at uh, your success story, what do you think would be the one hack you could recommend to someone saying, not one hack or one, what, what would be the one biggest reason for your success? I think a big part of it is making things tangible very, very quickly. You know, I'm obsessed with capturing action steps and taking them. And I'm obsessed with making up mock-ups and quick examples, putting out straw mans. You know, I am all about rapid action and helping things become visual very quickly. You know, going and talking to someone about an idea is very, very different from going and showing them some mock-ups of what it might look like. And so I, you know, I'm very presumptuous in that way. I like to always put things on paper. I like to always take a stab at it. I'd make an outline, make a mock-up. It just starts the momentum. It's an action orientation. It's complete action orientation, not just idea orientation is what you're saying. And what has been your motivation in everything that you've done so far? What has driven you? And possibly it has changed over time, but what is driving you now compared to maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago? I think I'm driven by helping things that need to exist actually happen. So I try to make my investments in things that I feel the world needs to exist. And in my own writing and work like that, I'm trying to put things out there that I think are, I found helpful that kind of needs to just be in print. I think it's part of the natural you know, human condition. When you have something in your brain and you just want to build, you want to build upon knowledge that's out there. You want to build upon products that are out there. You want to help industries become more advanced. You, and, and I love that. 
I just love that idea of building. And I don't know why we're all biologically inclined in some way to do that, but I think we are. You know, I think that's what one of the things that drives me. That's great. Uh, there's a fascinating interview with Mark Zuckerberg where I don't know who it was that asked the question, but he said, we don't build things to make money. We make money to build things. Right. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well said. Yeah, and that's like a that's a very interesting way to look at it because as a result of making money to build things, they end up making a whole lot money. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Scott, this has been a joy. This has been a privilege uh, to talk to you and uh, get to learn from you about this book and about your ideas. So any new projects in the work that our listeners can be aware of? I'm doing a, I welcome people to follow some of my writing on Twitter. I'm thinking a lot about the journey in between these days that entrepreneurs and artists are taking and where they can have mishaps in, in between the start and the finish of a journey. And uh, so on Twitter, I'm just Scott Belsky at Scott Belsky and also on Medium. Uh, it was where I'm publishing and, and uh, who knows, we'll see. I'm, you know, I always have projects brewing, but uh, they, they still got a lot of work ahead of them, which is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, is 99U still happening or? Yeah, 99U is, uh, is an annual conference that was founded by the Behance team and that's uh, annual in New York City. So we always have a thousand people come together. So I'll be there this year as well. All right. And uh, we've had Jocelyn Clay a couple of times on this podcast. I'm sure you're familiar with her, right? Yeah, sure. I hired Jocelyn um, to work at Behance and 99U and, uh, you know, and have, have worked with her for years. Great, great. So definitely uh, lots to learn and lots to uh, look forward to here, Scott. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. So my ambitious friends, I have a very important question for you. What is the single biggest indicator and predictor of success? Because in my reading of over 1,000 books, I have found out that there is one common thread, one common indicator that ties all of the greatest success stories in this world. And this is a factor that has been emphasized again and again and again in the greatest books ever written on the topic of accomplishing our goals. The greatest thinkers and achievers have all said the same thing. From Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher 2,000 years ago, to the greatest UFC fighters of today. And from champion athletes like Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan to big-time entrepreneurs like Elon Musk. So here at 2000 Books, we have created a 90-day course specifically on this topic, where we summarize 40 of the greatest books ever written on this topic. So reading these books, reading these 40 books can take you almost 250 plus hours. And if you read one hour every day, Monday through Friday, every week, this reading can take you a year. But what we have done is we have summarized the knowledge from these books into daily five to 10 minute bite-sized videos so that you can absorb a new idea or a couple of new ideas every single day and take action on them, take action on them and build them over time over a period of 90 days. So come check out this course at 2000books.com slash tough, that's T-O-U-G-H, tough, or Text the word TOUGH, T-O-U-G-H, to 44222 and get more information on this course. The course is now live and you can join at any time. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside of the course.